Welcome to Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. My name is Tori Telfer. I am your host, your faithful correspondent, possibly your new best friend, no pressure. And I've been feeling lately that life is just a little bit too easy and true crime is just not complicated enough. You know, it's also simple. It's also straightforward. Guilty, innocent, jailed, not jailed. There just aren't enough complications out there in this world. So I'm here to give you a story that is very complex. This story, I think, will make you feel a lot of emotions. It's a story about guilt, because this is a crime podcast. There's always a question of guilt. But I think it shows how um, dense and naughty, K-N-O-T-T-Y, guilt can be. It is not always straightforward. It is not always uh, just on one person. Um, I wanted to warn you that there are a couple curse words in this episode and there's some disturbing content about abuse. So, you know, listen at your own discretion and I would advise you not to blast this episode on the very loudest setting when you're in your car with your kids. All right, without further ado, let's travel to the sunny state of Georgia, and we're going to go back in time about, let's see, 16 years ago um, when all this kind of came to a head. serial killer Eileen Wuornos was executed by lethal injection in Florida, another woman found herself staring down the death penalty. Just like Eileen, Felicia Blakely was a sex worker with a long history of being abused. Like Eileen, Felicia knew what it felt like to be poor, to be abandoned by family. And both women knew what it was like to point a gun at the heart of a strange man. Granted, Eileen was in her mid-30s when she was arrested, while Felicia was just 18. Eileen was a white woman, Felicia was a black woman. Eileen was a serial killer with a body count twice as high as Felicia's. Felicia was carrying out someone else's orders when she killed. But both of them ended up in jail, and both women left the rest of us struggling with a very difficult question. How guilty is a violent woman who's had a horrible life? My mother 
Alicia Blakely was born in Jacksonville, Florida, where she was immediately plunged into a world with no authority figures. Her father was a drug addict, in and out of jail, and her mother wasn't really ready to be a mother and left Felicia mostly with her grandmother. Her grandmother felt guilty that Felicia's parents were nowhere to be seen, and so she let Felicia do pretty much whatever she wanted. Her grandmother meant well, but the result was that Felicia more or less ended up raising herself. Felicia was also sexually abused by a close female friend when she was young. Felicia hit puberty early and soon realized that her body could be used as a lure, a source of power. But power on its own is dangerous. Someone has to teach you how to use it. And no one was there to teach Felicia about her new body or about how to navigate all the attention that it was suddenly getting from men. When she tried to ask her mother for advice about losing her virginity, her mother, who was lying in bed with a boyfriend at the time, just muttered, give me another year, and rolled over. Still, after a childhood of being ignored by most adults, it felt intoxicating to suddenly have something that adults wanted. Felicia was an excellent runner, star of her ninth grade track and field team, and she found that her long, lean body was a ticket that would get her into clubs where men would swirl around her, paying for whatever she wanted. It was kind of like adrenaline, she said, because in my mind I was thinking that these grown men have baby mothers or they're married, but they're chasing me. Since her parents weren't around, she turned to these older men instead. They would give me the attention that I wanted from my parents, she said. I was growing up too fast, and their intentions for me became a priority. I was drinking alcohol, I was sneaking into nightclubs, I wanted to be grown. In the year 2000, when Felicia was 16, her mother was living in Atlanta and decided that she wanted Felicia to move in with her. So Felicia grudgingly uprooted her life in Jacksonville and moved the 300 miles north to Atlanta, only to find out that she'd have to repeat ninth grade again. This was too much to deal with, and so she dropped out of school and decided to work instead. She wanted to be able to buy herself clothes, go out, make friends, do things on her own terms and schedule. She was used to acting like a grown-up, and now she wanted to live like one. At first, she got a job at Taco Bell, but it wasn't long before she realized she could make quite a bit more money working as a dancer at a nearby sports bar. She paid someone to make her a fake birth certificate and a fake social security card so that she could pass as 21, and she gradually moved from the sports bar into more legitimate clubs. She got a boyfriend. She got pregnant. She decided to dump the boyfriend. She decided to keep the child. Her boyfriend had thought that she was 21, but she was still only 16. Her pregnancy was barely showing when, during a particularly slow night at the club, a man came up to her and surprised her by handing her a stack of $20 bills. He then paid her double for a series of lap dances and continued paying her just to talk to him. The attention was exciting, overwhelming, and probably a bit creepy all at once. Let me take you home and rub you to sleep, he said. Felicia told him that she never went home with clients and left the club with her pockets full. She couldn't have known that she'd just met the man who would try to destroy her life. The man with the $20 bills was named Michael Berry. He had the honeyed rhetoric of a cult leader, 
He thought of himself as a lion, and his greatest fear was becoming the prey instead of the predator. The very next night, he convinced Felicia to let him take her out on a date, but he ended up getting arrested the night they were supposed to go out. Felicia was impressed when he continued to court her from behind bars. He paid her mom's phone bill and sent one of his lackeys to take Felicia to her doctor's appointments. He was clearly powerful. For him, being in jail was a mere inconvenience, a formality. But perhaps the biggest gesture he made was this. She told him that she was pregnant with another man's baby, and he said, that's my son, too. Felicia had her baby boy on December 30th, 2000, and Mike showered her with roses and chocolates and jewelry and celebration. A few weeks later, Mike was out of jail and asking Felicia to move in with him. She agreed. The first year, he was the perfect guy, she says, showing up, everything. She never stopped to wonder why he was so intensely focused on her, so willing to pick up diapers for a baby who wasn't even his own. She just thought that she'd found love, real love. After all, Mike was constantly talking about how their goal as a little family of three was to make enough money so they could move away from Atlanta and have a good life together. The two of them talked about how they wanted to raise Felicia's son as a team so that the baby wouldn't know the pain of growing up in a broken home like Felicia had. Sure, Mike had several children already, and he was hardly in their lives, but he insisted that this time with Felicia was different. This time, he'd be the father who was there. But first, they had to make more money. One night, he told her, I'm going to need you to help me. You know, this is about me and you, me and you trying to make it. She was making about $300 a night, but he said she should start aiming for 700 At the rate Felicia was dancing, this just wasn't feasible. To make $700, she would have to start giving much more than lap dances to the men at the club. Sure, guys had asked her to sleep with them before, but Felicia had always turned them down. She wasn't ready, she didn't want to, that wasn't her job. But now, well... She wanted to please Mike, who was, after all, only looking out for them as a family. Eventually, Felicia screwed up her courage and told a guy that, yes, he could pay her to sleep with him. But he didn't have any condoms, and when she told him to go buy some, he left and never came back. She relayed all this to Mike, thinking that he'd be proud of her for being so safe. Instead, he punched her in the face. Mama, he said, you know we're trying to get this money. So why would you let somebody go? Felicia was sleeping with clients on a regular basis and so busy that she barely got to see her son, a problem that Mike solved by bringing in his ex-girlfriend Venus as a nanny. As Felicia got to know Venus, she began realizing a few things about Mike, too, like the fact that he used to beat Venus up so badly that he sent her to the hospital, and once he held her underwater in a bathtub until she was sure she was going to drown. Felicia also realized something else. Their happy little family of three was sort of an illusion. 
Felicia wasn't the only woman in Mike's life. There were a lot of other women. Not girlfriends, exactly, but women who worked for him. Women like her who slept with men and brought back their money to fulfill the quotas that Mike set for them. They were his girls, which made Mike their pimp. But if Mike was a pimp, then at least Felicia was his number one woman. She was his bottom bitch. In other words, she was his main girl, the most powerful of all the other sex workers and the one with the most responsibilities. If you want a definition of the phrase bottom bitch from a federal court, then, in the case of U.S. versus Pipkins, the United States Court of Appeals of the 11th Circuit defined the bottom bitch as one who is, quote, working the track in her pimp's stead, running interference for and collecting money from the pimp's other prostitutes, and looking after the pimp's affairs if the pimp was out of town, incarcerated, or otherwise unavailable. Despite the demeaning nickname, being a bottom bitch was desirable because it was a position of power and it came with certain perks. Besides, when Felicia had her doubts about the whole thing, Mike would always win her back. We're like Bonnie and Clyde, he'd say. It was them against the world, mama and daddy working hard to get enough money to leave it all behind and start a new life, a good life, a life where Felicia didn't have to do what she was doing now. If Felicia and her girls didn't make as much money as Mike demanded from them, Felicia would get beaten. And then she'd get presents, a mink coat, a coach pocketbook, a new car. Besides, there was always booze and drugs to numb her anxieties, and the adrenaline of success to keep her going. Sure, it seemed like Mike was always moving the target, but at least she was getting closer to that paradise she was promised, where she could get off the streets and live a crime-free life. The irony was that, in order to get off the streets, she had to stay on them just a little longer. In order to live a crime-free life, she had to stay on the wrong side of the law a while more. It wasn't just Mike sending her that message. It was the cops, too, or rather, the total disinterest of the cops. One night, Felicia went home with a man she met at the club where she worked, and as she danced for him in his apartment, she started getting a bad feeling. He was edgy, acting crazy. Before she could think of a way to get out of there, he whipped out a gun and raped her. Afterward, she raced away to find the police, and she could see in the eyes of the female detective just how disinterested she was in Felicia's case. The man who'd raped her came walking up and told the detective that Felicia was just a prostitute mad about money. The detective told Felicia to run along to the hospital and ask for a rape kit, which she did, and the doctor there who examined her was shocked at what he saw. He told her there was definitely enough physical evidence there to make a case. But when Felicia called the detective back, and called again and called again, she never picked up. And when her rapist showed back up at the club and tried to scare her by whispering disgusting things into her ear, she notified her bouncer and the police showed up, but they just told Felicia to go downstairs and asked the man to leave for the night. It was the equivalent of a light slap on the wrist, and Felicia got the message loud and clear. Later, she said, What's the purpose of looking to the law when, just because someone tells you I'm a prostitute, you label me as that, and then you're not willing to help me? Money was 
was always on Mike's mind, getting it, getting more of it, getting the most of it. It wasn't long before he grew frustrated with the sums his girls were bringing home. Sure, his girls could find men who'd pay them a couple hundred dollars for this or that, but didn't those same men have even more cash in their wallets? And rings? And diamond earrings? And cars? And drugs? What if, instead of coming home with a couple hundred dollars, Felicia could come home with everything a man had? And so Mike handed Felicia a pistol and told her it was time to up her game. Felicia tried to distract Mike from his murderous demands by doing something he'd wanted her to do for a long time. She got a tattoo of his name right around her neck, like a chokehold. Michael on one side, Barry on the other. He liked it, but he beat her up anyway for not bringing home enough money that night. And the tattoo wasn't the only way Mike showed his ownership over her. He had Felicia wear a padlock on a chain around her neck. This wasn't some wispy chain with a cute little heart-shaped lock on it, the sort of thing you might buy on Etsy or give to your best friend. It was a real chain with a real padlock on it. But when he gave it to her, he presented it as a romantic gift, a sign of their partnership. To Felicia, who hadn't even wanted to switch from dancing to sex work in the first place, The thought of actually taking a gun out of her purse and killing someone was unimaginable at first. But she was in really deep with Mike. She loved him and wanted to do what he asked and believed him when he said that just a few simple little murders could be the ticket out of Atlanta that they needed. But more than that, the abuse was getting really bad. Sometimes she'd wake up in intense pain and knew that Mike had raped her in the night. She was too ashamed to tell anybody about it. She felt completely alone. He'd convinced her that he was the only person she could rely on anyway, so what was the point of telling anyone else? Now that Mike had put murder on the table, every time Felicia failed to murder, he went berserk. Twice, Felicia had tried to shoot a client and failed. The first time, Mike poured gasoline over her body and held a lit match close to her. The second time, he pushed her into a closet, tied her up, poured alcohol on her, and lit her on fire. The message was clear. Felicia had to kill, or she'd be killed. On August 15th, 2002, 18-year-old Felicia and her friend Pumpkin showed up at the apartment of a man named Ray Goodwin with some ecstasy pills. Ray was 34, and he had been a good friend to Felicia, helping her out a couple of times when her work had become dangerous, listening to her troubles. She liked him. She knew he was a decent man. But Mike had picked him as the mark. At his apartment, Ray was hanging out with his pal Claudel Christmas, who was 35. The men thought that the girls were there to deliver the drugs and hang out for a while. They offered them tequila. They played video games and sprawled on the couch. Later, Ray planned to go out with his girlfriend. It was her birthday. But for now, they were relaxing. Felicia tried to relax, too. But her phone kept ringing. It was Mike, who wanted to know exactly what she was doing, what the others were doing, and when Felicia was going to whip out that gun. 
Some of the calls were manipulative. I guess you don't love me. I'm doing this for you. This is also you and I can ride off into the sunset. Why don't you love me enough to do this tiny little thing I'm asking of you? When that didn't work, Mike grew violent. And if you don't kill those men, I'm going to come over there and kill everyone. After enough tequila shots and enough phone calls and enough real threats from Mike that he was going to come over there and end her life, Felicia finally stood up. She called Mike one last time and told him to listen, and then put her phone on the back of the sofa. She raised the gun. She was crying. And she walked over behind Claudel. He spun around, just in time to see her standing there, holding the pistol, and said, Oh, hell no, it's not going to go down like this, before she shot him in the head, and he fell. At that, her friend, Ray, began screaming uncontrollably, and she turned the gun on him, too. She did it, as she said later, to shut him up. He dashed to the door and might have made it outside, but the door was locked, and Felicia shot at him until there were no bullets left in the gun. That's my baby, said Mike, when she returned to her phone. Felicia and Pumpkin drove back to Mike, who was waiting for them in a motel room, and gave him the stack of bills that they'd taken from the two dead men. Mike took the money and told them he was going out to get some weed. After a little too much time had passed, Felicia called him to see where he was. He told her that something bad had happened. He'd been robbed. All the money was gone. Felicia had become a murderer, a double murderer, for nothing. Before she could think of what to do, Mike was yelling at her, ready with plan B. She could barely understand what he was saying. He was insisting that Felicia needed to go out again right now and make up the money he'd just lost. She had to kill again, he said. It was the only way. She had to go through the whole thing again immediately. No time to waste. And don't forget that he was doing this for her. One last kill. She'd have to do it, but it was for her, for them, so that they could ride off into the sunset. But she had to go out right now and kill another man. Stunned and emotionally drained, Felicia agreed, but she told herself that this time she'd only pretend to kill someone, and she'd get the money some other way by sex or theft or something. She'd figure it out, she thought, but she wasn't going to pull that trigger again. So Felicia and Pumpkin headed out again, looking for a rich man. Soon enough, they were making eyes at Lemitris Twitty, a 29-year-old barber who worked with the coolest bands in Atlanta. Lemitris had also found fame through a stranger in Satter Avenue. Two of his childhood friends had been stabbed by the crew of the football star Ray Lewis, and Lemitris had been a witness to the stabbing and even testified at Ray Lewis's trial. Felicia and Pumpkin liked the looks of Lemitris, with his diamond earrings and the big rings on his fingers, and so the three of them went back to his apartment. Afterward, he fell asleep, and the girls started looking around his apartment for money, but then he woke up to see that Felicia was holding a gun, and he started yelling. Felicia said later that she pulled the trigger because Lemitris had lunged for Pumpkin, and that she hardly knew what she was doing when she emptied her gun into his body. She shot him five times. Then the girls pulled an air mattress over him to cover all the blood and made off in his gold rental car. 
They came away from that third murder with $650 in cash, about what they would have made if they just danced that night instead. Go and tell my baby sister not to do three bodies were discovered. Several witnesses had a thing or two to say about who they thought killed the men. There were these girls, they said. Two girls that they'd seen hanging around. Girls who worked for a pimp named Mike and sometimes called themselves Peaches and Snow. Girls who were up to no good. So the police started looking for two girls. Two girls in a stolen gold rental car, and it was the car that gave them away. Someone spotted it parked outside a fast food restaurant, and the cops pulled up to find Felicia and Pumpkin, whose real name was Amicia Irvin, inside. The girls were arrested and charged with armed robbery and three counts of murder. Felicia confessed quickly. She didn't have a sociopath's ability to lie. She seemed to immediately care about what she'd done, or at least about the repercussions of what she'd done. She told the detectives everything, how she'd shot Claudel in the head, how Ray had screamed, how she shot Lemaitreus after he'd woken up and found them robbing him, how she unloaded all the bullets from her gun, both times. Five months after her capture, the state decided to pursue the death penalty in Felicia's case. This was a surprising move, but the assistant district attorney was insistent that her killing spree showed, quote, an absolute total lack of remorse. In court, Felicia wore a crisp white suit and wept when she heard that the death penalty would be on the table. I'm only 18 years old and I haven't even finished high school, she said. This is not how I had planned my life. These crimes were shocking. A teenage girl kills three grown men in one night? If you didn't know all the details, you might be tempted to type up a headline saying that, wow, here was America's first black teenage girl serial killer. Well, unless you think the accused New Orleans murderess Clementine Barnabay was a serial killer, which I kind of don't think she was, but that's a story for another day. This should have been big news, a headliner true crime case, but the coverage never really made it outside of Atlanta. In fact, a movie that came out years later about Felicia got more press than her actual crimes did. Yes, Felicia was beautiful and seductive, and we like our murderesses to be pretty and sexual, but she was black, and so were her victims, and she was a sex worker, a job that infamously gets very little press when it comes to crimes committed by or against the workers. Despite all the blood of this crime, it didn't read on a national scale as anything exceptional. Even the headlines in Atlanta's papers were brusque and a little bit cold, Sex for Hire Murders, one paper called them. In fact, it wasn't until the journalist Mara Shaloup, writing for a local alt-weekly called Creative Loafing, dove into the case in 2004 that we really got a true portrait of Felicia and her crimes. Of course, the thing about crime is that there are the emotions stirred up by the media circus, or lack thereof, and those are completely separate from the emotions of the people who are actually affected by the crime— 
Even if no newspaper in the entire world had ever printed the name Felicia Blakely, the mothers of Ray Goodwin, Claudel Christmas, and Lemaitre's Twitty wouldn't have been able to forget her name if they had tried. Felicia's trial would have started in February 2004, but Felicia made a deal with the state. She would plead guilty to all three murders and would be given three life sentences without parole instead of the death penalty. Pumpkin also pled guilty and was given life in prison for murder and 20 years for armed robbery, though she may be eligible for parole after those 20 years pass. At Felicia's plea hearing, Lemaitre's mom, Gloria Twitty, took the stand to speak on behalf of all the victims' families. She called Felicia cold-blooded and a serial killer. She had little sympathy for the narrative coming from Felicia's defense lawyers, the narrative that Mike had forced Felicia to kill. Gloria said, She wants to blame everything on Michael Berry, but Michael Berry was not there when my son was killed. I heard a lot about what Michael Berry did to her. I didn't hear anything about what Claudel Christmas did to her. I didn't hear anything about what Ray Goodwin did to her. I didn't hear anything about what my son did to her, because they didn't do anything to her. Felicia's defense lawyer emphasized her awful childhood, the abuse, the poverty, the drugs, the manipulation, but the victims' families were largely unmoved. All three families said that their sons had had similar backgrounds, but none of them had turned to murder. Almost everyone in that room had known pain and fear and abandonment. Only one person in that room had pulled the trigger. When Felicia stood up to talk, she began sobbing pretty much right away, and then the families of her victims began sobbing, too. I am so sorry, she read from a prepared statement. I can only pray at some point in your life you will forgive me and get over this awful misfortune that I have caused you. Gloria Twitty was surprised to find her heart softening at the sight of Felicia up there, choking out her apology through tears. As she said later, At that moment, I saw Felicia Blakely as a little girl, not as a killer. When the judge read out her sentence, three life sentences without parole, he was emotional, too. He said, What has been described to me as your life is almost incomprehensible. I also believe it's true. But you've also taken from three men the most valuable thing they owned, their lives. With one foot on the platform Mike doing during all of this? He was in and out of jail on unrelated drug charges, but he never served time for ordering those three murders. From jail, he whiled away the hours by writing letters to Felicia. Persuasive, manipulative letters. The letters included lines like, I don't do basic shit. I am a leader. All I want to do is learn how to be a positive one. He asked her if she wanted him to get her name tattooed on his neck. He hinted at marriage. Fuck the world and everyone else in it because love conquers all, he wrote. When she wrote back that she didn't love him anymore, he responded, I didn't know you felt that way, but I do understand. 
I guess the happy ending was never truly a happy one anyway, but I was willing to do my best. I'm sorry I let my baby down in so many ways, but please never doubt my love or ability to love. One of those many, many ways in which he let her down? Felicia had learned, through a series of routine blood tests, that she was HIV positive, probably because of him. She called him to tell him, and he expressed no emotion. But his letters attempted to paint a different picture. He ended one, You will always be my only wife, the love of my life. I'll never forget you or my son. In one moment of telling self-awareness, he mentions to her that he's gotten a new tattoo, but he doesn't have a mirror in prison to look at it. I won't buy a mirror, he writes, because I don't like looking at what I've become. This is Tori. I got to speak to Felicia the other day. She called me from the Lee Arendale State Prison where she's currently incarcerated. There are no women on death row in Georgia at the moment, but if there were, they'd be at Lee Arendale. She gets to see her son regularly. He's now 17. She has her GED and is taking theology classes, and she spends her weekdays working long hours starting at 6 a.m. as a hairdresser and cosmetologist. On weekends, she writes and goes to church. In 2017, a movie came out called When Love Kills, the Felicia Blakely story. It's a compelling, if glamorized, version of Felicia's life, with the rapper Lil Mama playing Felicia, but Felicia told me that the movie glosses over the true pain and agony of her abuse. The breadth and the depth of what she went through is hard to convey, but she says that sometimes people watch the movie and know exactly what she's talking about. They get in touch with her, these young girls with similar upbringings, and they tell her that her story is their story, too. Felicia always hopes desperately that the movie will serve as a warning sign, a message to them to get out before it's too late. But sometimes that doesn't happen. Yes, um, one girl I had spoke to, she was she just turned 21, um, like last month. And she was telling me, like, she was crying and she was like, the whole time she was watching the movie, she kept saying to herself, like, that's me. Like, this is me. And she was like, I need to do something, like, before I end up like that. And she said she knew the whole time, like, this movie is showing her, but she didn't do anything, and now she is in here for murder. And she's a 30-year lifer, and she has a seven-month-old daughter, and it's like, it's just like the same cycle. Felicia also collaborated with the author Serenity Hall on a much more accurate book about her life called A Treacherous Hustle. And with a co-writer, Felicia wrote a novel called When What God Has Ain't Good Enough about a woman in love with a dangerous man. She writes a lot these days. She has a new nonfiction book coming out in early 2009 called Life After Life. Now that her story has spread farther than it did during her trial, people are coming out of the woodwork to question whether or not her sentence is totally fair. She has an Instagram account and over 6,000 fans, and they comment things like, there's no way you can get out, and I hope you're okay in there. 
I mentioned that her story is pretty sympathetic and that people out here think that she shouldn't be held solely responsible for the murders, maybe. And I ask her what she thinks about her sentence. Well, I feel like if somebody masterminds a crime, they should be accountable for it. Mm-hmm. Like, you got three men that lost their life because you instructed something to be done. Then you have two women that's incarcerated for a crime that you initiated. You have two kids that are without their mother because of this crime. And then however many kids the men had, so there's many lives that's been affected. And everybody is being accountable for the crime that he set in motion and he's never even been brought in for questioning. You know, like, I don't, I don't feel like, I still get away with murder because I feel like because I, I'm the one that pulled the trigger, I deserve to be here. I respect that. However, I feel like if justice should be served, that everybody that is responsible for this crime should be paying a penalty for this crime. Felicia can only talk to me in 15-minute cycles because she's calling from prison. At minute 14, an automated voice breaks in. You have one minute left. The voice is a painful reminder that, despite all that has changed in her life since her incarceration, all the work she's done on herself, her renewed faith in God, the prayers she sends up every day for her victims' families, and the way she tries to raise awareness for victims of domestic violence through her writing and social media, she's still in prison, and it doesn't look like that's going to change anytime soon. Yes, three men lost their lives, and she pulled the trigger— But you listen to her speak, and you just can't help thinking that something isn't quite right. How much time in jail equals another person's life? How far back does the chain of responsibility extend? A man beats a girl and lights her on fire, and that girl goes on to kill three men. Is that entirely her fault? A mother walks into a courtroom and sees a cold-blooded serial killer— Then the killer begins crying, and the mother suddenly sees a little girl. Which one is standing there, the girl or the killer? Could it be both? If she's both, what do we do with that duality? How do we honor the dead and give the living a chance? I cannot focus on the fact that Mike is not incarcerated. I can't focus on that. What I have to focus on is praying to God every day for my biggest family member, for their peace of mind, for their, their abilities to heal, for their for them to have the courage to let go and go on in life, despite what I've made them be subjected to. I can't focus on what did happen to Mike, because whether he get, ever get arrested or not, that's on God. We don't all go stand before God and give an account. I have to give an account for me. Mm. And it's like, I believe I should be incarcerated, and I believe that I should be here, but I hate that I don't have the possibility of parole. Like, I wish I had that hope that one day life might bring about a different chapter for me. Yeah. You know, but I don't But I don't disregard what I've done. I don't disregard the families that I've heard and the people who can't even stand to hear my name or even the thought of what I did to them completely ruin their whole day. Like, I don't take that away from them. Ha
That's all for today, folks. If you'd like to get in touch with Felicia, you can always write to her at Felicia Blakely, 11541104, Lee Arendale State Prison, P.O. Box 709, Alto, Georgia, 30510. Felicia's books and the book about her uh, are all on Amazon, so you can search for her name there, and I will link to them in the show notes. If you need to get in touch with me, follow Criminal Broads on Instagram for a photo of Felicia or email criminalbroads at gmail.com to chat. And stay tuned for the next episode, which will be our last episode of 2018, if you can believe it. Um, This episode, this past episode that you just listened to, was a story about a woman who did not get the death penalty. But our next episode is the story of a woman who did. So... If you can bear waiting two weeks, I will make sure that story lands in your inbox, your podcast app, wherever you listen to Criminal Broads. And I hope you have a wonderful time before then. And I hope you get to indulge in a little wintry cheer. Might I recommend peppermint hot chocolate and vintage ornaments? That's that's what I'll be up to. Um, Anyway, I'll talk to you later. Bye. What can I do? What can I say? After I've taken the blame You say you're through You'll go your way But I'll always feel just the same Maybe I'm right Maybe I'm wrong Loving you dear like I do If it's a crime Then I'm Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.